Leviticus 25, specifically the second half of the chapter, God is putting His finishing touches on the way the economy was to function in Israel. To do this, God established two different things. So Leviticus is all about God had freed the Hebrew people from Egypt, from bondage, from their slavery. He's led them uh, to Mount Sinai before taking them to the land of promise. At Sinai in the tabernacle, he's constituting things. He's forming them. He's creating them into a new people, a people to be a light unto the world. Very cool things taking place. All kinds of topics get covered as a result. Again, if you're forming a nation that you're going to indwell, literally dwelling in the midst of the camp there in the tabernacle, everything gets covered. The economy here in chapter 25 becomes the, the focal point. And in God's establishing of the economy, we have these two really cool ideas, two really cool principles that we addressed in some depth last Sunday. You had first the Sabbath year. So you were to work every six days, take a seventh day off. It was the Sabbath day, the Sabbath. Every seventh year, so you were to work the land for six years, but every seventh you were to take that year off as well. Beyond that, every 50th year, you had this special thing called the year of Jubilee. And upon entering the promised land, God was so serious about these things, in particular the Sabbath year, that he promises that he would yield for them a threefold increase on the sixth year, enough to cover for year seven, eight, and even nine, if that was relevant. Now we noted last Sunday, quickly recapping, four fundamental reasons for the Sabbath year. God wanted the land to have a chance to rest. It's very practical. He wanted the livestock, an opportunity to recharge. And remember, it was the livestock that tilled the land, that plowed the soil. So the land needed to reset. The livestock needed to recharge. He wanted the workers to enjoy a year in which they could relax. Finally, God wanted the owner of the land to always remember he was nothing more than just a steward. Aside from the Sabbath year occurring once in every seven, God also structured things so that a one-part economic, two-parts social justice tsunami would ensue once in a generation. On the 50th year, following a set of seven Sabbath years, on the 10th day of the seventh month, as we're told in the chapter, or the Day of Atonement, from the tabernacle, a trumpet would blast, literally a shofar, a ram's horn. It would sound officially ushering in this year of jubilee throughout all of the land. During Jubilee, all debts were forgiven. Loans canceled out. Lands returned to their original owner. And those in servitude, for financial reasons, liberated. They were set free. As we discussed last Sunday, Jubilee gave everyone one big do-over at some point in their lifetime. How nice would that be today, right? And as a result of this do-over, Jubilee safeguarded against the development in Israel of generational wealth or generational debt. It prohibited the formation of economic classes, the haves and the have-nots. It forbade the consolidation of affluence or the development of land barons. In the end, Jubilee, this year of Jubilee, was God's way of keeping Israel from becoming Egypt. Because of this generational resetting of the entire economy taking place every 50th year, there's no question that the amount of money that you loan someone was determined upon their ability and willingness to pay you back before Jubilee. Because, well, when the year of Jubilee came around, 
the debt was canceled out. If you purchase land to expand your farming operation, the terms of that lease had to be in proportion of the number of years leading to Jubilee because the land would revert back. Like the brilliance of Jubilee was not that it eliminated everyone's debt, and don't get me wrong, that's fantastic. But the brilliance of it in God's economy is that Jubilee deterred the accumulation of debt to begin with. Jubilee was this large safety net aimed at protecting social order, fairness. It was a check on greed, our sinful human condition. It maintained a measure of equality. It it stopped the oppression of people. Jubilee was important because it fostered an economy that preferred human beings over material possessions. Now, continuing this really revolutionary expose on the way the economy of Israel was designed to operate, the remaining portions of Leviticus 25, what we'll look at this morning, God is now going to tackle three additional ideas, three additional topics in relation to the year of of Jubilee and the Sabbath year. One, if you're a note taker, you can jot these down. In verses 23 through 34, you're going to find the redemption of property. Secondly, you'll find uh, God addressing their attitudes towards poverty. So the redemption of property, their attitudes towards poverty, verses 35 through 38. And then finally, the efficacy of slavery, uh, verses 39 through 55, which will be interesting and we'll unpack in some depth. Now, before we dive into this section, there is one additional pillar to the way that Israel's economy was to function that kind of weaves its way in the verses we'll look at, that we kind of need to discuss up front. Aside from Jubilee being this gigantic reset button, there was also an idea articulated, known as the Goel, or or the kinsman redeemer, central to the way the economy worked. In, In verse 25, as just an example, we'll see this official family position, the Goel, being referred to as, quote, a redeeming relative. Within each family, this goel was sanctioned or was given the legal authority to intercede on behalf of a family member on really a wide array of varying legal matters. As we'll see, the goel was responsible for family property. If you were about to lose the farm because you made a bad bet, the goel had the legal standing to swoop in, pay the balance free of interest so that the land wasn't lost. Additionally, let's say you found yourself in just a terrible situation, so bad that you had to sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt, what you owed. The Goel had the illicit authority to satisfy any outstanding balance you might have, thereby redeeming persons or or people. So the Goel was responsible for property. The Goel was also responsible for persons. Now, it's not specifically addressed in the chapter, but according to Deuteronomy 25, The goel was also responsible for a family's posterity. So property, persons, posterity, three Ps. The best illustration of this idea is the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. He could redeem a childless widow by marrying her in order to provide the deceased husband an heir. Legacy, family was important, genealogies. This was known as the Leverite marriage. You can kind of study that a little bit more on your own. Now, according to the law, the requirements 
for a person to be the goel of a family was as follows. Clearly, you would have to be a near kinsman. You, you had to be a relative, blood relative. Understandably, aside from this, to fill such a function, the goel would have to be in good legal standing. He would have to be financially stable himself, right? I mean, to satisfy someone else's debt, you couldn't have your own. Logically, a goel had to be able to redeem. I mean, you'd have to have the means. Maybe you didn't have debt, but if you didn't have means, how could you satisfy somebody else's debts? And finally, the goel well, would have to be willing. I mean, all these categories have to be near of kin, would have to be in good legal standing, would have to be able, would also have to be willing to bail your butt out, right? We'll come back to the goel and these things and how it all intertwines at the end of our study. The Lord continuing a conversation with Moses from Mount Sinai. We're diving right back where we left off last Sunday. Verse 23 of Leviticus 25. The land, as the Lord says, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. As I mentioned last Sunday, because of the year of Jubilee, the best a family could ever offer their land was on a 49-year lease. Couldn't ever sell your land. You didn't even own it. It was God. He gave it to you. Continuing, if one of your brethren becomes poor, has sold some of his possessions. So this is a situation where the motivation of the sell was one of necessity, not opportunity. So he's poor. Bad luck. And if his redeeming relative, so there we have it, the goel of the family, comes to redeem it, he may redeem what his brother sold. Now, it's worth pointing out that this is the first mention, interestingly enough, of a legal term. Uh, whether you want to call it redemption or to redeem or redeeming, either of the varieties. This is the first mention of redemption in the book of Leviticus, a book of law. This is the first time we find this legal term. And it's not an accident that the idea of redemption is introduced and the context of this Goel, who's a redeeming relative. Redemption. Again, if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. It was really a threefold process. Three things were kind of necessary for the, the legal parameters of redemption to take place. One, redemption necessitated the incurring of an unpayable debt. Kind of a bummer, but yes, you had to really mess up. You had to owe something you couldn't pay. By definition, the debtor couldn't redeem themselves. They needed a redeemer. Also, redemption would require, after a debt you couldn't pay, a relative willing to intervene, a goel, legal standing, willing, able. In the end, this would lead to a restoration of the debtor by the creditor as if the debt had never existed in the first place. So you had to rack up something you couldn't owe or ever pay. You had to have a family relative that was willing to step in and intervene and through his actions, you were made whole again. This is the idea, the framework of redemption in the Levitical sense. Verse 26. Or if the man has no one to redeem it. So there's no official goel in the family. But he himself becomes able to redeem it. So the idea here, he owes something he can't pay. There's not a redeeming relative to intervene. But kind of by happen chance, he finds some other means beyond himself. Then let him count the years since its sale, 
and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. In this dynamic, the price for redemption was based upon the original debt owed minus the amount the creditor had been able to make uh, over the period of time he had had the land in his possession. So again, God just being fair with how this was all to operate. Verse 28, but if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee, it shall be restored and he shall return to his possession. As mentioned, if there was no Goel to redeem the land, it wasn't redeemed. If no other options emerged, it wasn't redeemed. However, that final safety net, upon the year of Jubilee, upon that trumpet, redemption would occur, God intervening, no matter what, no matter the balance. Now, the topic kind of shifts a little bit, so slightly. Verse 29, if a man sells a house and a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it was sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it. Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. And this ancient dynamic, the vast majority of people lived and worked on the land in which they owned. This was an agricultural society. That said, walled cities, what we have mentioned here, would often be built in centralized locations. And they would really serve two functions, walled cities. They would be a, a location for commerce. So you would take your crops, you would meet in some kind of a, a safe place, a walled city, and that's where uh, buying and selling and trading and whatnot would occur. So there was some value there. Beyond that, walled cities would be built, centralized location, in the situation of an invading army. So, so if you had an invading army and you needed a place uh, for safety, everyone would leave the fields, they're out, they're vulnerable, they would go to these places of protection. Now because of these dynamics, the property value, the real estate in a walled city and this ancient culture, um, well it was high. And because the, the, the house in the walled city is not tethered to the land, a sale, according to the Lord, was both final and permanent. Like you could redeem it in one year, God says. But after that, because of the investment it would make, it would require a house in a walled city. You lost it. You had one year to redeem it. After that, well, it was a permanent transaction. Not only uh, Jubilee wouldn't even reverse. Verse 31, however, so there's kind of an exception to the larger rule. The houses of the villages, which have no walls around them, shall be counted as fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Verse 32, nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. Now, the tribe of Levi was unique of the 12 tribes of Israel in that they didn't receive any land as an inheritance. So when they finally get to the promised land, they're dividing up, God is dividing up the land. The Levites were unique. They weren't given land as a possession. Their job was to focus on the work of God, the tabernacle of meeting, and they were to be provided for by the rest of the tribes. That being said, they had to live someplace, and so according to the 
the scriptures, they would dwell in 48 different cities spread out throughout the land. Um, that was their inheritance. And because of that dynamic, the fact that the Levites weren't given land, but they were given cities, walled cities, and houses in them, there's a carving out of a stipulation to protect them. Um, continuing, if a man purchases a house from a Levite, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession will be released in Jubilee. So one year it didn't matter. It would go back to a Levite. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of their cities should never be sold. It is their perpetual possession. Now following this, this section, and again we're going to kind of work our way through all of this and then kind of come back and tie it all into an interesting idea at the end. But this section following redemption of property, God now switches to addressing the attitude that his people were to have towards poverty. So first property, now poverty, and specifically God is going to address how he wanted his people to treat the impoverished. Interesting stuff. Verse 35. If one of your brethren becomes poor. So the topic here is the way the nation was to handle a Hebrew brother who had become impoverished. So this was all about family dynamic. So if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, just like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Now back in Leviticus 19, God's already gone on the record, addressing how the people of Israel were to treat a stranger or a sojourner, a refugee, a person that was desiring to immigrate to Israel. Well, they were to be treated by the nation with care and love and compassion. Since this was the case, it was only natural that citizens were to be treated as like just as well, right? I mean, that's logical. Somebody down on their luck, they were to help. Again, the goal of God's approach towards the poor, don't miss this, was to help the person get back on their feet. It was to help the person that had fallen into poverty, poverty no longer impoverished. That's the goal. Meaning, every policy intended to create the conditions where an individual had a chance to get themselves out of their condition, out of their poverty. So it makes sense, right? The first thing you'd have to address if someone's down on their luck was their living situation. So the exhortation here is let them live with you. Let them live with you. Let them move in. You see, in Israel, homelessness was forbidden, especially of the citizens. Continuing verse 35, take no usury or interest of him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Again, God's instructions here in these verses focus what? On the people's heart towards the poor, towards the impoverished. Not only were they instructed to open up their homes so that neighbor and their kids had a place, a roof over their head, but you weren't to take advantage of the poor in their place of desperation. Now, let's be real. When the bank account hits zero and the bills start mounting up, things get a little dicey, don't they? You get a little desperate. And as a result, you can become vulnerable of being taken advantage of. 
Now, please note what God isn't doing here. God does not mandate money be loaned. He's not mandating you lend anything. At, at a minimum, you should open up your home. But lending of money, this is not a, a command to do so. The other thing you should note is that in Deuteronomy 23, God was also clear that if you did decide to lend money to a Gentile, you could charge them interest. So the idea of lending money at an interest rate is not a, an immoral thing in and of itself. God didn't want it happening among the Jews, Jew to Jew, but if you were, had some wealth and there was a Gentile, a sojourner, you could lend at an interest. What's being articulated here is that when it came to within the family of Israel, if you did make an advance to someone out of the kindness of your heart, not because you were obligated to do so, but you were moved with compassion to do so. In addition to opening up your home, you wanted to give them a little bit of money to get them back on their feet. God is clear explicitly that there was to be no usury or that whatever you lent was interest-free, no interest. You see, in God's economy, the poor were protected. They weren't to be preyed upon. Or situations taken advantage of. You see, in Israel, practices that we find marketed in America specifically to poor people, such as high interest lending, payday advances, title loans, vulture capitalism, was outlawed in Israel. Unless it was a Gentile. <laughs> and then it was okay, but to Hebrew to Hebrew, no. And you know, in truth, Again, I don't want to get political, but America could go a long way towards a more equitable system by regulating what we don't when it comes to the taking advantage of the poor. You know, it's interesting that within our New Testament context, so if you're reading this, you're like, man, that's kind of extreme, right? You know, no interest, just giving money. Like, oh. You know, Jesus, he actually takes this entire idea one step further than what we have in Leviticus. Let, let me read you something that Jesus says in Luke 6, verses 34 and 35. He says, And if you lend to those whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Again, this all gets filtered not so in specific mandates, but a heart, an attitude. Here's a good rule of thumb for the economy of the church. You know, if a brother is in a tough spot, you become aware of it, and God lays it on your heart to help. Maybe you opened up your home, but maybe you want to lend something. You want to give them some money. You want to help them out. You should only do so with two conditions. First, the loan should be interest-free. Don't lend money to a brother with interest. And secondly, this is just wisdom, but you should lend the money. Yes, there might be a promise. I'll pay you back, man. I'll, I'll get it back to you as soon as I got it. But in your own heart of hearts, you should lend it with no interest, and you should lend it not expecting a remittance of any kind. Like, if you're un, unable or unwilling to act with those two considerations, no interest, and you know, I might never get this money back. If you're not okay with either, then just don't lend the money. More problems come as a result. 
Like because of money issues, joint business ventures, investments, I've seen more Christian relationships destroyed over money than adultery. It's the truth. So I would add, before you partner with a brother in any of these ways, consider please the worst case scenario and then determine if the potential money gained is worth losing a relationship if the deal falls apart. Be careful. After dealing with the redemption of property, the attitude his people were to have towards poverty, God now turns to the efficacy of slavery. Isn't that fun? You know, admittedly, since this section of Leviticus is one of the more controversial passages in the entire Bible, most would just prefer to skip it because, you know, that's easier. I promise you, you're not going to hear a lot of Bible studies this morning in Leviticus. You're not going to hear a lot of Bible studies from Leviticus covering a passage dealing with slavery, but I can't ignore it, so let's just get awkward. Verse 39. And if one of your brother, your brethren, who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant, a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. The situation being described in these verses these three verses, present a Hebrew man who's become poor. So he's owing now a debt to a fellow Hebrew that he simply cannot satisfy. It's a tough spot. Now, examples of these type of occasions would be as follows. It could be a business deal, let's say, that went south. You, you, you couldn't pay the guy back. Or maybe there was a contract made for services you were not able to render, make good on. Or let's say there was an unlikely accident. Or maybe an intentional crime. Either way, let's say you caused somebody a material loss and you didn't have the resources to restore that loss. Again, the economy was based on a measure of restitution. In these circumstances, because making good is, was mandatory and bankruptcy a foreign idea, it was legally permissible for you to sell yourself or literally exchange labor to pay off what was owed. So you owed something. I don't have the cash, man, but me and my family, we're going to work to pay off this debt. Obviously, an agreement would be reached between parties, the length of servitude and proximity to the number of years of Jubilee, what you owed, you got to make good. Uh, you should note Exodus 21 in this scenario, caps the number of years, no matter what was owed, to six. So it never went beyond six years. Jubilee was reset. In the dynamic where only Hebrews were involved in the arrangement, God's clear the man and his family were to be treated as hired servants, not slaves. In verse 42, God now explains the reason for that distinction, why they were to be treated as hired servants and not slaves. He says, for they are my servants, verse 42, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They're my people. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. It's worth pointing out Exodus 21 
that there's a stipulation that was added to these instructions whereby someone could choose to become a bond slave even after receiving their freedom. And so Exodus 21 describes a dynamic where you, you did owe a debt. You couldn't pay. You and your family are like, okay, I've got to work five years. We're going to pay off this debt. We're going to pay off this loan. And so you're finally at the point where you're free. But you're like, I don't want to leave. Like, I really enjoy uh, the free rent. <laughs> I enjoy not having to worry about where my meal comes from. I, 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 I like the protection. Like, this is a, man, this was, it was a bummer it happened, but it's become a great dynamic for me and my family. We just don't want to, you become my friend. You're my master. I'm cool staying. Well, what would take place is that uh, you would go to a judge. This was not something that could be coerced. The former servant would say, I'm, I want to continue my servitude, not out of obligation, but out of love. It was literally a bond slave or a love servant. There was a procedure where they would take you, you would have a ring, it would be nailed to the door, so that you would have this earring that had been nailed to the door, indicating you were a servant in the master's house, not because you had to, or because you owed a debt. It was free will. Very beautiful thing. Uh, we'll tie that in later. Verse 44. As for your male and female slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you. So now we're transitioning to Gentile slaves. From them you may buy male and female slaves. You may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brother and the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with, with rigor. I, there was nothing controversial there, so we can just move right along. Uh, verse 47. <laughs> now, if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Again, one of his brothers may redeem him. This Again, the goel. An uncle, uncle's son, may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him. Or if he is able, to, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Verse 50, let's just finish this out. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from that year he was sold until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of the hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining, according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. But if there remain but a few years until Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years, he shall repay him the price of redemption. So again, we've got these stipulations because year of Jubilee was this gigantic reset. So there was pricing involved. He shall be as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. If he is not redeemed in these years, he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, right from the jump, let's be totally honest about what's being articulated. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this in any way. In a book in which God is structuring the way his nation was to operate, God did not outlaw slavery, nor does he condemn it. Like in Israel, according to this text, it was entirely permissible for the Hebrew people 
to, quote, buy male and female slaves, even, quote, children, as long as the people being bought and sold were Gentiles and not Hebrews. Furthermore, slaves, this is what the Bible says, were considered to be, quote, property. Did you see that? They could be inherited by your children after you, with the arrangement being permanent. Meaning in these situations with the Gentiles, Jubilee didn't apply. Now, the, the exception to that one rule would be if a Gentile slave makes the decision to become a part of the Hebrew people, this act of faith. and Therefore, they're circumcised, them and their kids. At that point, Jubilee would apply because you're no longer a Gentile. Yes, ethnically, you might not be Hebrew, but you're part of the family, so Jubilee would be ap applicable. It would liberate a person from their servitude. Now, when discussing this controversial topic, let's be real, it's controversial. Slavery. Christians make two big mistakes when having this conversation. The first is excusing away the plain reading of the text. That's the first mistake. Don't bite. Like, you'll hear commentators argue that since slavery was such a common practice in the ancient world, there was no way God could abolish it. So, Knowing the reality of the situation, God just decides to rule over it. I can't abolish it, but I'm going to set some rules and parameters for it. In effect, the juxtaposition central to the argument is that while God wasn't exactly condoning slavery in the scriptures, he was seeking to create a model of slavery in the Hebrew nation that would contrast the way the world did this, you know, to make the practice more humane. Additionally, Bible teachers, if you study this topic, they make a mistake because they try to, to blunt the reality of these things by arguing that seismic cultural changes, you know, things and the bedrock of human society, well, those changes don't happen overnight. You'll find this argued. In more extreme circles, this idea will lend to what's known as a trajectory hermeneutics. For a softer approach, there are men, men I respect, like G. Campbell Morgan, who have argued that in addition to the, the radical nature of you know, the Bible classifying slaves as actually being humans, that, quote, the condition of slaves among the Hebrew people would be in marked distinction to slavery as existing among other peoples, adding that this was therefore the beginnings of a great moral movement. That's the argument. My problem with such a position is that at best it's disingenuous, at worst it's just stupid, intellectually. Like if God was, think about it, if God was initiating here in Leviticus, quote, the beginning of a great moral movement, you know that would ultimately climax 3,500 years later when William Wilberforce abolished the slave trade in 1833 A.D.? We can say if God was initiating a great movement that it would take 3,500 years to finally climax. Like that's just a, a strategy that took too long. God, I expected a little better. Let's be real. Aside from this, if you've been with us at all in Leviticus, to be, to be real, in Leviticus, God has he's presented nothing less than his perfect ideal on anything. Like, God never takes the culture into, into account. Oh, well, you know, 
I know everyone in the world is eating bat soup, so i got to temper my dietary guidelines a little. Just We're going to set a, a whole trajectory movement so that, you know, 3,500 years when the, the coronavirus will come out, then they'll realize they shouldn't be eating bats. I don't know. The idea that, that God, like in Leviticus, tiptoes around moral things is baloney. I mean, really, it's just dumb. Like God is ordering his people for what purpose? To be a direct and deliberate contrast to everything in the world. And never once has God ever cared whatever the normal practice happened to be. So don't sugarcoat it. God could have abolished slavery right here and right now, but he didn't. Second big mistake that Christians make when discussing such a topic of controversy is to allow a moral equivalency be made between the type of slavery the Bible addresses and what took place in the antebellum South. Like, sadly, what occurred in America and the fact that both master and minister alike used the Bible to justify the enslavement and brutalization of black Africans, that undoubtedly complicates the topic of slavery. According to Brandon Cleaver, who does, did a video, he, he works for Robbie Zacharias' ministry, and he did a 10-minute video about this topic. Uh, it's on YouTube. You can look for it. it it's, it's brilliant. But he says this. He's, he's an, a, a, a black man himself, African-American. He's talking on uh, Black History Month about this topic from a biblical standpoint. And he says something I think is brilliant. He says when you're talking about this topic, the topic of slavery, two things are central to the subject. The motivation for slavery and the treatment of the slave. So you always have to kind of, when you're talking about this, you've got to keep those things in mind. For example, in the antebellum South and across Europe at that time, the motivation... It was free labor through the involuntary enslavement of minority blacks with the terrible treatment of those slaves being rooted where? In a subhuman ideology of racial inferiority of the blacks to an Anglo superiority. Motivation, treatment. You see, when you take into account those two things and the way the, Bib the, the Bible addresses the subject matter, you'll see that it's much different. The Bible has a different view. Those two motivations, the motivation and the treatment, foreign. Like, according to the Bible and even our text, slavery was never involuntary, ever, in the Bible. It was not to be involuntary. And like Exodus 21, verse 16, God says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So the whole idea of the force enslavement of someone is not biblical. All of those white races should have been stoned to death. According to Exodus 21, verse 16. The forced enslavement of another person is no basis anywhere in Scripture, even in the topic of slavery. If we can speak honestly about the subject, there is no doubt, right, that life in the ancient context, the ancient world was difficult. Like people had a daily fight to survive. So there are those that sold themselves 
for economic reasons, for financial reasons. But the prospects for others of dependable shelter, an ample supply of food, protection found in numbers, many people in the ancient world would volunteer themselves into slavery just so they could eat and have a safe place and a roof over their head. The ancient context is much different than our perspective from the antebellum South. Secondly, according to the Bible, the treatment of the slave was something God took very, very serious. Like, not only does the Bible affirm the idea that all men are created by God and therefore equal in value to the Lord, but the Hebrews were instructed to treat everyone in their home as if they were family. You know, what were they when God's giving these commands? They had all been slaves. Every one of them had been a slave in Egypt. So when God's like, hey, there's this slavery thing, treat your slaves kindly, they're like, I understand that. I get that. That hit them in an area they were already sensitive to. The idea of mistreating a slave was forbidden. The fact of history is that slavery as a manifestation of racial prejudice like we witnessed in America between whites and blacks, that whole idea didn't emerge until the 16th century. Justifying slavery on the twisted notion one race is superior to another is not only an abomination, but it spits in the face of a biblical view that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Now, with the important caveat, that our perspective on slavery is much different than the biblical ideal, and that what took place in the South to blacks was not only a terrible blight on humanity, but also a stain on the Christian leaders of that time. Let's be real. Let me say something controversial. You know, since what I've said up until this point hasn't been, you know, let me really go for it. I have no problem saying God intentionally allowed slavery. That's what the Bible says. Not only does God not abolish the practice when he had the chance here in Leviticus, but five times, five different places in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 2, 1 Peter 2, the relationship between the slave and the master is addressed thoroughly with not one mention of it being immoral furthermore the apostle paul actually goes so far as to pen an entire letter to a master a slave owner named philemon on behalf of a runaway slave paul had encouraged to go home so why didn't god abolish slavery tell you why everyone is a slave Andy Warhol far from a theist he once said being born is like being kidnapped and then sold into slavery like an inescapable reality of life is that everyone everyone all of you everyone serves someone or something. Everyone, as Metallica is saying, has a master. Master. It's the truth. Ironically, the myth of the American experiment 
is that somehow we're actually free. You look around our culture, we're far from free. Like at best, our system only affords people a greater liberty to choose who or what they want to be enslaved to. Like, let's be honest about it. Everyone finds themselves a slave in some way, enslaved to something. For those of you, you know who your master is? Every decision has to be made. It's Discover Card. Or it's that big chunk of debt, that student loan. You can't even go on vacation because of it. What a terrible master. Some of you are enslaved, if you're honest, to a job, a career. Others an insecurity, a sexual proclivity, an addiction. Like there is a reason that the Bible refers to life and sin using the terminology of bondage and enslavement. Everyone is a slave. The gospel affirms this, doesn't it? You see, the great message of Christianity isn't a freedom from slavery, but an opportunity to choose a better master to serve. Like men like Paul and James and Peter and Jude, Epaphras, they actually describe themselves in the New Testament as being, quote, bondservants of Jesus Christ, love slaves. Men not of obligation, but of free will. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22, Paul writes, He who is called while free is Christ's slave. He uses the terms. In a world culture where three-quarters of the population were slaves. Aside from this, seven different times in Romans 6, Paul will reference slavery in our life in the world before declaring, but now you've been set free from sin, having become slaves of God. You have the fruit of your holiness to its end, everlasting life. When discussing the topic of slavery, I make no excuse for what the Bible says. God allowed it. Because slavery is and will always be central to being human. Everyone serves someone or something. Just slavery looks much different today than it used to. The pressing question ultimately centers on who's your master going to be? Because you will have one. Now, let me close with a different direction. Operating under the premise that this chapter, along with chapters 26 and 27, was moved from Exodus, when God was speaking to Moses from Mount Sinai, to the end of Leviticus, after God spoke from the tabernacle. It was moved by a man named Ezra, to be read by a group of Jews returning to the land following their Babylonian captivity. We talked about that last Sunday. If, if, with that in mind, an interesting application emerges I want to close with. The Sabbath year was first addressed in order to explain to the people why they had been exiled for 70 years. The passage then transitions to the year of Jubilee to encourage the people returning that they served a God of second chances. So, seventh year, well, let me explain why it was 70 years of captivity. Because for 490 years, you skipped obeying this. So there was a consequence. But thank goodness, there's Jubilee. So we have the seventh year explaining why they were in exile. You have the year of Jubilee saying, it's all right, God is still good. And then the chapter closes with these three subjects. 
the redemption of land, aiding the poor, and the efficacy of slavery in God's economy. Now this is what I find amazing. It's not an accident that within this final section of this chapter, we find the consistent mention of the Goel, of the kinsman redeemer, who does what? Legally possesses the right of redemption over three things. Property, posterity, and persons. I mentioned last Sunday how ultimately Jubilee was all about Jesus. It pointed to Jesus. What then though makes Leviticus 25 so astounding is then the transition to the Goel. For it explains how Jesus is able to bring about Jubilee. First, redemption necessitates what, right? The incurring of an unpayable debt, something you can't repay on your own. The children of Israel could check that box, right, after the Babylonian captivity. Because of their failure to obey the Sabbath year, they had experienced God's judgment. But then, when Jubilee may have canceled out their debt, their total redemption of what? Inheritance, property, land, posterity, a life in contrast to to poverty, and persons serving a near kinsman. They need a Goel, who was in legal standing himself, and wasn't Jesus. Jesus owed no debt. He was debt-free. And not only was, did he not have debt, but he was also able. He had the means, and most importantly, he was willing. You see, closing, wrapping this up, consider the gospel message presented in Leviticus 25. A just judgment on account of our rebellion and a God of jubilee who gives second chances. Why? Because he sent what we needed most, a goel, who has since redeemed us for what? A glorious inheritance. You have property in heaven. He also came to provide his poor brethren the abundance of life. So that we could do what in the end? Serve a good, equitable master. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says.